0: Welcome to The Site of the Crime, your weekly Florida and federal criminal case law update podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky of Lesnetsky Guy in Law, and each week I'm going to release one episode reviewing the previous week's decisions coming out of the Sixth Florida District Courts of Appeal and the Florida Supreme Court, and one episode reviewing the previous week's 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and U.S. Supreme Court decisions. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of The Sight of the Crime. Welcome back to the side of the crime. Our federal criminal case law update for the week of January 23rd through the 27th of 2023. And I know, I know I'm I'm a little late with this week's episode. As I mentioned on the Florida Case Law Update episode, my firm is in the middle of moving office locations, and so I'm a little like the Lincoln Lawyer right now, moving around from place to place to place. But we will hopefully be moved completely in within a couple of weeks which will allow me to get back into a weekly routine and to have more consistency on when these episodes will be released. We'll probably shoot for a Thursday release date for the federal case law episodes and a Tuesday release date for the Florida case law episodes. So better late than never and on with the show. It was a slow week for the 11th Circuit and there were about 16 criminal opinions released. Uh, only one published decision and four unpublished decisions that we're going to talk about. The rest were Andrew's brief cases and reasonableness of the sentence cases and other miscellaneous cases that were either really, really short or kind of boilerplate decisions. But I have listed each one of those in the show notes with links to the opinions. So let's get started. Our first case today is United States v. King. This is an 11th Circuit published decision that was released January 23rd, 2023. And King is a case involving the district court imposing an incarceration sentence to receive a 24-month intensive residential substance abuse treatment program. Mr. King initially pled guilty to conspiracy to manufacture meth, and he was sentenced to 168 months followed by five years of supervised release. A condition of his supervised release was to get drug tested and to participate in a drug rehab program. Throughout his term of supervised release, he had several violations for using methamphetamines, failing to comply with the drug treatment program, and other various violations. On his last violation, his guidelines were 4 to 10 months, and the district court sentenced Mr. King to 36 months and no supervised release to follow. The judge stated on the record that Mr. King needed at least a 24-month term of imprisonment to have a chance of participating in the intensive residential substance abuse treatment program that was offered in prison. Mr. King appealed, arguing that his sentence was substantively unreasonable and that the district court improperly sentenced him to incarceration for the purpose of rehabilitation. On appeal, the 11th Circuit quickly held that Mr. King's sentence was not substantively unreasonable, as they almost always do. And as to his second argument, he didn't object at the trial level, so plain error applies. In United States v. Vandergrift, the 11th Circuit held that when revoking supervised release, a district court cannot sentence a defendant to incarceration for the purpose of rehabilitation. The court was relying on the Supreme Court's decision in United States v. Tapia, which held that under Section 3582, Subsection A, imposition of a term of imprisonment, a court may not impose or lengthen a prison sentence to enable an offender to complete a treatment program or otherwise to promote rehabilitation. So Vandergrift extended Tapia to supervise release revocation cases. And here the 11th Circuit held that the record did not show that the district court considered rehabilitation as a purpose for his prison sentence, and even if it did, under plain error, his substantial rights weren't affected, and the fairness, integrity, and public reputation of the revocation proceedings weren't affected. The court noted that in the Tapia decision, the Supreme Court noted that a district court can discuss rehabilitation programs in prison during sentencing. It just can't sentence a defendant to prison for the purpose of rehabilitation. And here the 11th found that the district court merely mentioned the substance abuse treatment program after it already stated that a prison sentence was necessary to protect society and for specific deterrence, which are both valid sentencing considerations. And because the record isn't clear that the the district court's purpose in sentencing Mr. King to prison was rehabilitation, And because it appears to the 11th that the district court would have sentenced him to prison anyway, without regard to rehabilitation, Mr. King loses under the Plain Error Standard. There was one dissenting voice in Judge Rosenbaum, who wrote a dissenting opinion basically saying, Come on, guys, the district judge clearly considered rehabilitation when imposing the prison sentence, which is impermissible under Tapia and Vandergrift. So Judge Rosenbaum would have reversed and remanded for a new sentencing for the district court to resentence Mr. King without consideration of rehabilitation. But Judge Rosenbaum was in the minority. So case affirmed. Our second case today is United States v. Anderson. This is an 11th Circuit unpublished decision that was released January 24, 2023. Anderson is a revocation of supervised release case that involves credit for time served. Mr. Anderson was sentenced to time served, followed by 60 months supervised release on a fraud conspiracy case. Apparently, the district court had initially sentenced him to a 21-month prison sentence, but then entered an amended judgment that removed the prison sentence and sentenced him to time serve, followed by 60 months of supervised release. So Mr. Anderson had only been in jail for one day when he was initially arrested, and then he immediately started supervised release upon his sentencing. Mr. Anderson then violated supervised release, and the district court sentenced him to time serve, followed by 59 months supervised release. He again violated supervised release, and was sentenced to 30 days imprisonment, followed by 59-month supervised release. Mr. Anderson lodged a general objection to the sentence, and he appealed. On appeal, he argued that the new sentence was unlawful because the district court didn't reduce his 59-month supervised release term by the amount of time he already served in prison, which is weird because he had only spent one day in custody up until that point. And because he didn't make this specific objection at the district court level, plain error applies. So let's try to unpack what Mr. Anderson is trying to accomplish here. The maximum term of supervised release for a Class B felony is five years or 60 months. A new term of supervised release cannot exceed that statutory maximum. A new term of supervised release must be reduced by the aggregate length of any term of imprisonment that has been imposed. So if Mr. Anderson, for example, had been previously sentenced to 30 days incarceration on a previous violation and the district court sentenced him to another 30 days on this violation, that would be 60 days imprisonment or two months. And following supervised release term could not exceed 58 months. This is 58 months supervised release plus two months incarceration equals the 60 month maximum allowable sentence. So here, the district court sends Mr. Anderson to 30 days imprisonment, followed by 59 months supervised release, for a total of 60 months, which is the maximum allowable supervised release sentence. And the 11th Circuit found no evidence that Mr. Anderson had served any previous actual time in custody. Technically, it appears that the sentence did exceed the maximum by one day, because Mr. Anderson should have received credit for the one day in custody when he was arrested but the 11th Circuit didn't address that issue and instead determined that Mr. Anderson had no credit for any time uh, served. Weird case. Case affirmed. Our third case today is United States v. Gray. This is an 11th Circuit unpublished decision that was released January 27th, 2023. In Gray's emotion motion to suppress case. Federal a- agents came to Mr. Gray's house to ask him about obtaining child pornography from at least two minor children. The agents recovered two phones, and the phone numbers matched the number of the phone that sent messages to at least one of the victim's phones. He admitted to receiving nude photos, and the agents recovered sexually explicit photos of the children on his phones. Mr. Gray was charged with production and attempted production of child pornography, cyber stalking, and possession of child pornography. Before trial he moved to suppress his statements. So the issue on appeal was whether the district court erred in denying the motion to suppress and finding that Mr. Gray was not in custody when he made the statements and therefore not entitled to Miranda and that the statements were voluntary. A defendant is in custody for Miranda purposes when a reasonable person in the defendant's position would feel a restraint on his freedom of movement to such an extent that he would not feel free to leave. So it's an objective standard, not subjective. Whether Mr. Gray actually felt like he was free to leave or not is irrelevant. And a person is in custody only if there is a formal arrest or restraint on freedom of movement of a degree associated with a formal arrest. So the court will consider factors such as whether the officers pulled out their guns, cursed or raised their voice, uh, where the questioning occurred, and how long the questioning took. And if they tell the defendant that he is free to leave, that is a major factor tending to show that he is not in custody. But even if a defendant is not in custody, the confession may still be inadmissible if it was not given voluntarily. So if you're in custody and subject to interrogation, you have to be given your Miranda rights. If you aren't in custody, you don't have to be read your rights. But your statement does not, uh, will not be admissible unless it was voluntarily made. Here, Mr. Gray was told that he was not under arrest and he was free to leave. He was told to stand in the hallway and then in the living room while officers searched, but he could go where he needed if he asked. He was told he was free to leave the apartment at any time. He voluntarily followed the officers back into the apartment after being interviewed. The officers didn't pull their guns out. They didn't touch Mr. Gray. They spoke in a calm tone. They questioned him in the back of an unmarked FBI vehicle located outside his apartment. They didn't lock those doors or prevent him from leaving. And the interview lasted about 70 minutes. So based on those facts, the 11th Circuit held that Mr. Gray was not in custody. The court also determined that the statements were voluntary. Based on those facts, and even though he was young with no prior experience with law enforcement, and he had intellectual deficits, he wasn't questioned for an excessively long time, the tone was calm, and law enforcement didn't threaten to use force or make any promises. So based on these facts, Mr. Gray was not in custody, and his statements were voluntary. And therefore, the district court did not err in denying his motion to suppress. I will say, it seems like the court kind of glossed over the whole intellectual deficits thing. But then again, maybe the record was devoid of any information on what exactly those intellectual deficits were. I'd like to see a defendant's intellectual disabilities fleshed out a little more in these voluntariness of the confession cases, but I digress. The 11th Circuit also determined that the evidence was sufficient in this case, and that the sentence of 20 years was substantively reasonable. So Mr. Gray's conviction and sentence were upheld. Case affirmed. Our fourth case today is United States v. Jasper, and this is an 11th Circuit unpublished decision that was released January 23, 2023. Jasper is a breach of plea agreement case. Mr. Jasper was arrested for possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. He pled guilty pursuant to a written plea agreement where the prosecutor agreed to recommend a sentence at the low end of the guidelines. Mr. Jasper's guideline range was 100 to 120 months. Mr. Jasper requested a downward variance and a sentence of 21 months. The prosecutor, who agreed to recommend a sentence at the low end of the guidelines, which would be around 100 months, instead argued for a sentence within the entire guideline range of 100 to 120 months. Not cool, Mr. or Miss AUSA. Not cool. So Jasper was sentenced to a below-guideline sentence anyway of 88 months, and he appealed, although I'm not sure why, arguing that the prosecutor breached the plea agreement by not recommending a sentence at the low end of the guidelines. But on appeal, Mr. Jasper had two things working against him. He didn't object at the district court level, so plain error review applies. And the district court sentenced him to a below-guideline sentence. So no harm, no foul. And predictably, the 11th Circuit held that there was no indication that the district court would have given a lower sentence had the prosecutor not violated the plea agreement because he got the benefit of the agreement anyway. In other words, if the prosecutor had asked the district court to sentence Mr. Jasper to 100 months, as the prosecutor agreed to, the bottom of the guidelines, the district judge still would have sentenced him to 88 months, which was still lower than the prosecutor's lowest promised recommendation. So, watch out in the Southern District of Georgia. I'm not sure what happened behind the scenes here, but on its face, it looks like a prosecutor simply agreed in writing to do one thing, and then just inexplicably decided to go back on his or her written word. Not a good look for the United States Attorney's Office. Case affirmed. Our fifth and final case today is United States v. Valdez, an 11th Circuit unpublished decision that was released January 23rd, 2023. And Valdez is a 404-B prior bad acts case. Mr. Valdez was indicted for theft of government property. While in the Air Force, he started stockpiling military gear for his own personal use. He was charged with stealing eight ballistic plates for a body armor vest that were each worth $625. Shortly before trial, the government filed a 404-B notice intending to admit evidence that Mr. Valdez admitted to also stealing a combat helmet and smoke grenades, and he planned on stealing night vision goggles and ammunition. Mr. Valdez argued that this 404B evidence was highly prejudicial and only minimally probative and should therefore be excluded from the trial on stealing the ballistic plates. The district court allowed the 404B evidence, and at trial, The jury heard testimony from Mr. Valdez's friend who testified that he served as a lookout as Mr. Valdez climbed through an unlocked window and took the eight ballistic plates. The jury then heard testimony from other witnesses who testified that Mr. Valdez admitted to taking the plates. The government also called witnesses to testify that Mr. Valdez had admitted to stealing the combat helmet several months before and that he was going to ship the plates back to his home in Kentucky like he did with the helmet. Witnesses also testified that a few months before the plates went missing, Mr. Valdez had a detailed plan for stealing night vision goggles and ammunition. The jury convicted Mr. Valdez and he was sentenced to five years of probation with four months of home detention. Mr. Valdez appealed the conviction, arguing that the district court erred by admitting the 404B evidence. As an initial matter, the government argued on appeal that Mr. Valdez did not preserve his argument because he didn't renew his objection to the 404b evidence at trial. But the government lost on this argument, because they were relying on an old version of Rule 103, which was amended in 2000. Once a court rules definitively on the record, either before or at trial, a party need not renew an objection or offer of proof to preserve a claim of error for appeal. So there is no need to object after every word that comes out of a witness's mouth to preserve your objection, despite the government's best efforts to require it in this case. Just object once. It's okay. But when you do object, you have to be specific. So here, Mr. Valdez didn't object at the district court level to the evidence relating to theft of the smoke grenades. The motion to eliminate didn't mention smoke grenades. He didn't object when witnesses were talking about smoke grenades. So his objection to the 404B evidence as it related to smoke grenades wasn't preserved. So the 11th Circuit went on to discuss the probative value of the 404B evidence that Mr. Valdez challenged. By pleading not guilty, he put his intent at issue. And evidence that he stole or intended to steal other government property was highly probative of his intent to steal the ballistic plates, which were also government property. And all of the uncharged bad acts were close in time to the theft of the ballistic plates, according to the 11th Circuit. They were all within months of each other. So evidence that Mr. Valdez stole or planned to steal other government military equipment was highly probative of his intent to steal the ballistic plates. And because the jury was told that the 404B evidence could be used only in deciding whether he had the intent, motive, or opportunity to steal the ballistic plates... There was no undue prejudice. They weren't told that they could find that Mr. Valdez had a propensity to steal, which would be improper. I'm not sure in reality that a jury is going to be able to parse out the permissible purpose of the evidence. In other words, to show his intent to steal from the impermissible purpose that he has a propensity to steal, a.k.a. he's a thief and therefore he must have stole this time. But an intended or unintended result of 404B evidence is that the government's going to be able to backdoor propensity evidence by packaging it as intent evidence. So as long as they don't argue that because he stole in the past, he must have stolen this time, then the jury is free to come to that conclusion on their own. So 404B evidence remains a valuable tool in the prosecutor's toolbox. Case affirmed. And that's a wrap. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky with Lesnetsky Guy on Law, and this was another episode of the Site of the Crime podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button. And if you'd like to keep up to date on all the latest criminal law cases, subscribe to the Site of the Crime. And if you like the show, please review us. This will help your colleagues find us, and they too can stay up to date. Each week, we'll release separate Florida and federal criminal law episodes with the previous week's court opinions. Look in the show notes for links to each case and for a link to the written case summaries. If you have questions or comments, please don't hesitate to shoot me an email at jeremy at See you next time at the set of the crime.